This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Well, welcome to Saving Grace. My name is Simon Eastwick. I'm your host this week. We have a fascinating guest today who is going to delve into all kinds of theological issues around grace, some you might have thought of and some that you probably haven't thought of yet. But by the time we're done today and our next episode, you will have improved your knowledge about grace just by listening to this broadcast. Our guest today is Dr. Fred Shea. Fred is uh, is somebody that I have uh, uh, had the privilege of getting to know over the uh, last number of months. I've been here at Grace School of Theology, and I found it a privilege to, to have him on uh, on the podcast. Welcome, Fred. Simon, it is great to be here today. Well, it's uh, it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Some of the uh, conversation we were having just before uh, we started recording this have sort of set a backdrop in my mind for sort of some of the things that we're going to talk about. Just the importance of grace, the importance of getting this message out to everybody around the world who is listening uh, to this podcast and, and wants to learn more about what grace is. But Fred, before we kind of get into what you do uh, here at Grace and kind of some of the, the more meaty content of this podcast, I wondered if you'd just tell our, our audience a little bit about yourself and what you do here at Grace School of Theology. Sure. I've, uh, I've been at Grace School of Theology for about two years now. But before that, uh, my wife and I, Marsha, we lived in Phoenix, Arizona for about 21 years. Uh, in Phoenix, I was professor of theology and dean of the doctoral program at Phoenix Seminary. And so we had many years there. We raised our two kids there as well, although both kids did go off to Texas for college, for which we are very grateful. But before that, also, I was a pastor for a number of years. And so I come from a background that's uh, not just the academic world, but kind of the pastoral world. I pastored in, in churches in Dallas, Texas, and in uh, Southern California. So I come from a pretty diverse background and um, have come to Grace School of Theology as a professor of theology. Uh, I also am the dean of the doctoral program there, the doctorate of ministry program. And then I get to function also as the um, editor of the Grace Theology Press. So I have uh, my hand in a number of things, and they're all very exciting and very integrated together. Yeah, it's fascinating. As as I got involved with this ministry, that I, I started to look around at all the different facets of that ministry, of this ministry, and how how we have a very holistic approach, I think, to to taking this message of grace to the world. Uh, we have, obviously, professors that are able to uh, teach others uh, that are actually still in the pulpit, that are, that are preaching and teaching around the world. And then we have this whole grace uh, theological press arm that you're you're heading up just basically getting getting this message out through different authors different perspectives uh, into the marketplace but before we get there I just wanted to uh, quote you on uh, on one of a, a, a blog you recently wrote and I found this fascinating so I'm just going to read it sort of verbatim and then get you to react to it you stated I just can't get over the fact that most people don't seem to agree on the gospel and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ we might expect that of those who are not Christians, but many Christians don't agree with one another or hold differing views about these subjects. Many other Christians don't see any issues or don't care. To them, I might appear both obsessed and arrogant. I guess I see the gospel and discipleship as two important things a person should understand clearly. 
what what would you would you like to explain that a little bit further, um, uh, Fred? As as you kind of think about the, the, those comments that you made. Well, you know, I think all of us are familiar with Bible passages like John three sixteen, and most of us learned to quote that many years ago. Or Ephesians two eight and nine: We're saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. Mm-hmm. Or passages in Romans three and four, Galatians two sixteen, all of which make it very clear that. In order to gain eternal life, in order to become a Christian, uh, in order to be converted, one needs to believe or trust in the finished work of Christ. And when you do that, you've gained eternal life. You pass from death to life. You are a whole new creature. But that is a totally different message than a message we find, say, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, where Jesus is talking to his disciples And in verses 25 to 35, he says things like, if you want to be my disciple, then you must hate your mother and father, sister and brother, and cleave only to me. Or if you want to be my disciple, you have to be giving up all of your things. Or if you want to be my disciple, you have to basically be willing to go to the cross. Now, that is a very stringent and conditionally oriented message that in my mind has nothing to do with John 3.16. John 3.16 is talking about a free gift that gains you eternal life. Luke 14 and a number of other passages in the New Testament are talking about now that you are a believer, here's how you grow up. It's the difference between in, in physical life, you have to be born, and once you are born, then you have to grow up. So you're born, and that's nothing on your own. That's just a freebie so to speak. But then now that you're born and now that you're living, now it's time to start to crawl and walk and run and sprint and endure and a whole lot of other things. So becoming a Christian is free. It's a free gift. It's by grace. But living the Christian life or living out the walk, which the New Testament epistles speak about quite a lot, that requires work. So the one hand, becoming a believer is by one act of faith. Living as a believer requires a life of faithfulness. And those are two different messages. And when we blend those together or when we superimpose one on top of the other, we begin to become part of the problem that the Reformation was all about. They were trying to counteract what the Catholic Church had done, where they blended faith and work. So the Reformation came about to saying, well, you're not saved by works, but you're saved by a faith that works. And so all of a sudden, they commingled justification and sanctification together. They blended that message together just enough to create confusion. And in fact, that confusion comes down to this very day. And and do you see that being prevalent in uh, a lot of churches in the United States and then around the world? Well, I am not a world traveler. I read some internationally, but I live in America, and I know a lot about what goes on in America, so let me give you what I know. What I know in America is that many, many churches, and I'm talking about evangelical churches, either used to have a very clear understanding of the gospel and a clear understanding of the difference between justification and sanctification, but over the years they have been influenced by writing, and they've been influenced by speakers, they've been influenced by conferencing, they've been influenced through the internet to buy into more of a theology that blends those two together. So I think many, many churches, and just coming from my background in 20 years in Phoenix, 
discipling and mentoring up pastors and training them and and knowing where they 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 serve and looking at doctrinal statements and uh, I've seen that a number of churches have begun to adopt a little bit of a different viewpoint than they originally had. In fact, last week I was talking with a person about he wanted to know whether to go to a certain church. We looked at the doctrinal statement. I knew the senior pastor. I looked at the doctrinal statement, and now I know the new pastor they just hired. Well, those two pastors believe in two totally different things, but the doctrinal statement had been made so vague that both of them could believe what they believe and yet be in congruence with the doctrinal statement. And to me, that's a shame. Because what you had in that church then were people who believed there was a pre-trib rapture, but they could also believe in a post-trib rapture. They believed in dispensationalism, and then there were others who don't believe in dispensationalism. There were those who are charismatic, and then there are those who are not charismatic, and there are those who are lordship salvationists, and then there are those who are not. And everybody can live together under the doctrinal statement because the doctrinal statement didn't say anything. To me, that's dangerous. And from a pastoral position, I want a doctrinal statement to say a little bit more to clarify it so people know what we believe. It's kind of like in the Republican and the Democratic Party. They both have a plank. They both have a, a statement of this is, our, this is what we're trying to achieve. Right. Well, the less you have there, then nobody knows what you're trying to achieve. But, of course, the real reason for that is we need people to come. We need people to be with us. So let's not do anything or say anything or hold to anything that's going to exclude anybody. And that becomes a problem. Yeah, I, I would agree. It, it really does become a, a huge issue, which is sort of, I, I guess, when we, we go back to the founding of this uh, school, the, the school of theology, it really came down to the fact that there was a, a theological wavering, if you will, out there, and, and people weren't being taught. Uh, the truth around grace and uh, other key doctrines. Um, what What are your thoughts about the the, the reason for the foundation of uh, Grace School of Theology? Well, I think the purpose of Grace School of Theology was to basically say we want to make sure it's very clear that the gospel is one of pure grace. It is free. There are no conditions attached to becoming a Christian. Now, once you become a Christian, it's very important how you live. And the Apostle Paul, John, and Peter all speak to that, and they warn us about living righteously for Christ. And if you don't, there's a consequence. There's a consequence on earth called discipline, and there's a consequence in eternity called the Bema Seat, where we will have our works evaluated by the Lord Jesus, not to determine whether we go to heaven, but to determine our role in heaven. Over the years, many churches have, have blended and commingled the idea of justification and sanctification, so it became unclear. The Grace School of Theology decided we need to make what was unclear very clear. And so from day one and throughout the curriculum and throughout the teaching faculty, you have people in place who understand that issue, teach to that issue, as well as the other things that need to be part of a seminary. But we're very clear on that. In fact, in our, our doctorate of ministry program that I created a couple of years ago, we've just started, one of the required courses that I put in there, one was on contemporary theological issues, which is very important. Another one was on biblical leadership, but a third one is a course that basically looks at trends regarding grace theology in the world. And in that course, we look at the history and the present state, the theological state of what's going on in terms of grace theology and the attack upon it. 
One thing we need to be very clear on, though, is those of the people we're talking about that we may not agree with, these are Christians, and these are brothers and sisters in Christ, and these are evangelicals who believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, the infallibility of the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible. They also believe you're saved by grace, through faith, not by works. So these are Christians that we are going to be spending eternity with. The problem is they make things a little bit clouded when they say, which was said in the Reformation period, well, yes, you're saved by grace through faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And with that little antidote to the Council of Trent, which was the Catholics' um, Reformation itself, trying to counteract the Reformation group, uh, with that phraseology, we ended up muddying the gospel because then our Reformed friends are able to say, yes, we're saved by faith alone. But if you don't have enough evidence, usually good works, if you don't have enough good works that prove that you had the right kind of faith, then that proves you obviously didn't have the right kind of faith and that you were never saved in the first place. That's a fairly dangerous theological um, slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that, it's that moment when we put the word but in there after saying it is by grace alone, and then we say, but, that's when we get ourselves into trouble. That's right, because some people want to add baptism, some people want to add church attendance, some people want to add a number of things, and those are all outside of the evangelical camp. But inside the evangelical world, we have brothers and sisters. In fact, I work with a number of world-renowned theologians at Phoenix Seminary who would have a but. They say, you're saved by faith alone, but... If there is not enough or some evidence of good works changed life, then that means you actually never were saved. In fact, let me, let me extrapolate how uh, severe this would become. Uh, two Old Testament professors that I know, I asked them this question. I said, where is Solomon? And they kind of looked at me and they said, you mean King Solomon? Yeah, King Solomon. Mm-hmm. And they said, and this was two different occasions independently, they said, well, he's in hell. Now, I said, now, let's make sure we're real clear. We're not talking about a certain compartment of paradise, a certain compartment of the afterworld. You're talking about the lake of fire hell. And they both said, yes. I said, so tell me, why, why is he there? Well, because he went after strange uh, foreign gods through the, his foreign wives. Well, that theology basically said, well, Solomon looked like he was saved when he was writing the Proverbs, and he looked like he was saved when he was leading the nation, and he looked like he was saved when he was building the temple and helping guide all the worship, get it all set up. But he didn't persevere to the end, and therefore that proves he never really was saved. Now, that's blending a little bit of Old Testament with New Testament theology. I get that, but the bottom line is, here's a person who went to hell, even though they were the king of Israel and the wisest man in all the world, according to Jesus. Hmm. That's where that theology ends. Yeah, it's a very tragic place to uh, to end up when you look at somebody like Solomon and, and many other, I'm sure, figures in the Bible, when people are able to, just as you said, extrapolate different things to draw their own conclusions. Well, you know, like another illustration of this, again, with the these two Old Testament profs, these are, you know, PhD Old Testament guys who are pretty bright. But I said, so where's the group that came out with Moses from the Exodus? 
Well, they're all in hell. I said, how come? Because they didn't go into the land, according to the book of Hebrews and according to the Old Testament. They didn't go into the land, so they didn't get the rest, so they're in hell. I said, now, why is that? Well, they, they had a problem with believing, and therefore they didn't go into the land, and because land equals heaven, then those people are in hell. Hmm. I said, so, and one last question, where is Moses? Because Moses didn't go into the land. Well, of course, he has a special situation, right? He, the special pleading. Well, everybody went to hell of that generation except Moses. Well, they have to have the exception because Moses shows up at the transfiguration, and I don't think he made a stopover from hell into the transfiguration. Right. A little bit of a problem. But again, that's where a certain theological viewpoint takes us. Now, again, we're talking about conservative evangelical Christians. We're not talking about enemies. We're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ who have certain exegetical um, commitments, which lead to certain theological commitments, which result in significant pastoral predicaments. Because think of it, you're counseling with a person, they're living very poorly, they're not really sure they care anymore. Under that system, you basically say to them, oh, well, you're not saved, you're going to hell, you need to go get saved again, or you need to get saved for the very first time. As opposed to some of us who would say, you know what, you need to understand that what you do counts right now, or what you do right now counts forever. And you're going to stand before the Lord at the Bema seat. And I know you went to camp and you trusted Christ and you started walking with him, but all of a sudden you got in with the wrong crowd and you started doing the wrong things. And now you're not interested and you need to understand you're going to reap what you sow. There are consequences for how you live. Come on, let's get our act together. Let's walk with Jesus again. Well, those are two totally different ways of, quote, counseling Mm -hmm. a person. So this has major impact at a pastoral level. Right. I mean, this is what we refer to within the Church as discipleship, right? There's that moment when you come to know Christ, which which is one part of your, your faith walk, and then the second part is really discipleship. And that discipleship involves what you're talking about uh, in the second part, right? Absolutely. I mean, Jesus was very clear. What is free is free. Amen. The free gift of eternal life is a free gift. I mean, Romans 11, Romans 4, Romans 3, and a whole lot of other places. It's If it's by works, it's not of grace. If it's by grace, it's not of works. It's a binary option. It's one or the other. Mm. Now, discipleship, that's family business. And just like every child that is born is 100% human, that's because they're born. But now what do they do? Well, now they got to crawl and walk. But you know what? Not every kid crawls and walks and runs on the same schedule. In fact, some kids don't ever run. Some kids don't ever walk. Some kids don't ever crawl. Everything's different. It's about growing up, growing up in Christ. And so discipleship is essential, and that is why I believe, and this is just kind of a personal thing, I'm not speaking for anybody else, but it seems to me that one of the reasons the church is so anemic and it's so gullible and and has been taken in by our culture is because we have not grounded our people in what the Word of God says and look for the kingdom that's in the future. Instead, we're trying to live for the kingdom today and enjoy the world. Jesus made it very clear. You can't serve God and mammon at the same time. We don't believe that. We We don't believe what he said. I think I can. I think I can serve them both and have it all in perfect harmony and be happy. And Jesus said, no. Absolutely. You'll love one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the Scriptures encourage us to to move on from milk uh, to meat. 
it, it encourages us to to develop and deepen our walk with Jesus Christ. Um, but you know, I think Fred, there's a lot of propensity, like you say, for people just to to stay very comfortable at that at that milk level. Um, what do you what do you what do your what do you say to people that you you run into that are very comfortable there? How do you encourage them to get to the next level in their walk? Well, Simon, one of the problems is basically we've been inundated by the culture. We, it, it, you know, it flashes its lights. It looks good. It smells good. It feels good. It promises to make you just have everything tingling. I mean, we look at it. We want to bring on the Christian dancing bears and the jugglers for Jesus, and life is great. Right. And then all of a sudden, life falls apart. And if we don't have a firm foundation, then we don't know what to do when the rains hit. It if we didn't build our house upon the rock then everything starts to fall apart. What I do to help people understand this is I try to call it a reframing. I want them to reframe their picture of reality. I want them to reorient themselves. Mm. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 8. He says, let's walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. So the question is, who are you walking according to? Well, that means every day I get up and I say, I want to frame my life today and I want to walk according to the Spirit. That means I want my mind set on the Spirit. That means I want to look like Jesus in the way I behave. So how do I treat people? How do I deal with people? How do I deal with jobs? How do I do my homework? How do I live my life in a, in a moral capacity? I want it to be under the power of the Spirit. I want to walk according to the Spirit. And I want to be aware of the dangers that are out there in the world. I mean, just think of what's happened in our culture over the last 25 years. 25, 30 years ago, most people in the Christian church had a basic understanding that homosexuality was, quote, wrong, not to mention sinful. Mm. If you ask the young evangelicals today, millennials or younger, many of them, they don't have a problem with homosexuality. They don't understand why we're all bent out of shape. Well, what's the problem? It's just a choice. It's just what they want to do. That's not how the Apostle Paul talks about it. Paul puts it in the form of idolatry. They've exchanged the worship of the Creator, and they are worshiping the creature. And that confusion is manifested by homosexuality, which is the most perfect example of a confused mind. Homosexuality is an example of a confusion, because number one, it doesn't work. And number two, no, no other creatures do it. So it's kind of a problem here. Well, we have to help our young people, in this case, get grounded in the Scripture so they can make biblically informed decisions. But that's not popular. Why? Because the culture has inundated us. And is basically, we have not done what Paul said in Romans 12 too, right? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How do you do that? By the renewing of your mind. We're not helping to renew anybody's mind because we think sermons need to be less and less and thinner and thinner. Why? So that people will come and be entertained and stay and give money and keep us going. Well, you know what? If we can't trust the Spirit of God to impact people when they come and hear the Word of God, because they are the people of God, if we can't believe that something supernatural won't take place and that we have to kind of move into more of an entertainment mode, we might as well give this one up. Because if there's no spiritual power, then we're just playing a, a game of entertainment. Yeah, I think you make um, some very good points um, in, in that uh, in what you just said. Um, so one of the things you said, Fred, that just kind of struck a chord with me is people want to 
um, live a certain way, or they want to be more Christ-like. Um, talk to us a little bit in the few remaining moments that we have of this podcast. And by the way, uh, you've been such a good guest. I want to have you back for at least one, maybe two more, uh, if you're willing. But oh, you uh, um, tell us just a little bit about how does someone go from that I want to walk closer with Jesus Christ to uh, you know taking that next step and actually walking closer with Christ. What does that look like? Well, one is a method, and then the other is a motivation. Uh, from a motivational level, I think there are two major motivational mechanisms for living the Christian life. One is my appreciation of what he has done for me. I mean, I was going to hell, and now I'm going to heaven. Well, that's called gratitude. That's appreciation, because when God got me, he didn't get a real good deal. But he has given me eternal life. Amen. So gratitude. But there's a second motivational mechanism. Not only my appreciation of what he has done for me, but one day his appreciation of what I have done for him. Now that is in the arena of discipleship, and that's in the arena of reward theology. In other words, when I become a Christian, it's by one act of faith I receive the free gift of eternal life. Now that I'm born again, now that I'm born, I'm now supposed to walk and crawl and all that kind of stuff, growing up, maturing in Christ. Why do that? Well, one, out of appreciation, but also because there's coming a day, just like the book of Ecclesiastes said in chapter 12, the last two verses, fear God and keep his commandments for one day every act will come into judgment, whether good or bad. Well, that's what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. I make it my ambition to be pleasing to him because one day every act will come into judgment, whether good or bad. We are going to stand before the king. He will evaluate our lives and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or he will say, I am ashamed of you because you were ashamed of me. And people say, well, will that really happen to a Christian? Sure. Look at 1 John 2, 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we will not shrink back in shame mm. at his coming, but have confidence so you either shrink back or you have confidence. That is going to be an interesting day. So how do you motivate a person to walk with Christ? You remind them of why they should be appreciative for what Jesus has done for them. And you remind them that one day Jesus will be appreciative of what you've done for him. It's called the Bema Seat. Now, that's motivational aspect. That involves a mindset. But the real question then comes down to methodology. Well, how do I do that? Well, this is where reading the scripture, praying, fellowshipping with other brothers and sisters, going to church and worshiping God collectively, maybe having a small group, maybe it's a men's group, a women's group, helping you be accountable. All of those things are helpful. Memorizing scripture, meditating on scripture, making sure you guard your eyes of what you see on the internet, what you see on your phone, what you see in the paper, what you stare at in the street. These are called the disciplines of spirituality. And it's not legalism, it's discipline. We need to discipline ourselves to walk worthy of the calling with, with which we've had. So the Apostle Paul says, I beat my body black and blue lest I be disqualified. Paul wasn't worried about going to hell, but he was worried about being disqualified when he stood before the Lord at the Bema Seat. So there needs to be motivation, a mindset, and a methodology in place if we're going to run and live and win the Christian life. Yeah, Fred, you, it's it's uh, really good points that you've just made, 
and you know this entire podcast has has gone um, a very interesting way. I've I found the conversation really really fascinating because I think we've covered some of the basics of grace. We've covered. Uh, the whole area of uh, of just to, sort of just touched on justification and sanctification of this of discipleship, and um, well, I'd love to have you come back and and dig into this a little bit more, and uh, I look forward to to having you back uh, on on the podcast next week. Simon, I would love nothing more. Great, thanks so much. You bet. Thanks for joining us today. This has been a great discussion with Dr. Fred Jay about grace and about Grace Theology Press. One of the things that we just so value is your feedback. We love your emails. We uh, love to get questions from you. If you have a question, please feel free to, to, to send it to us uh, at savinggrace at gsot.edu. That's savinggrace, one word, at gsot.edu. Uh, we love to incorporate uh, your questions into our podcasts and to go back to the guests that we've had and or new guests and pose those questions to them so that you can interact with us and we can provide those answers. So please keep sending them in. We sure appreciate them. And just on a personal note, I wanted to let you know that our dear sister in the Lord, Carmen Pate, is still battling with cancer, and she is doing well, and uh, she covets your prayers and uh, just wanted to give you an update that she is still in the midst of a battle with cancer, but we sure hope that she will be back soon, sitting in this chair where I am. Her dedication and her love for the Lord just comes through every one of these podcasts that she does. So we want to send our best wishes to her and uh, our prayers. You've been listening to Saving Grace. And don't forget, the love of Christ is something that cannot be earned and cannot be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.